Welcome. This is the Matterhorn. I'm your host, Dr. Kathleen Waller. Here we discover the truth in fiction by understanding how to layer stories with ideas, culture, places, and texts. Join us on Substack for links, extra media, and transcripts, or upgrade to a paid membership for my serialized fiction and monthly Zoom coffee chats. Hi guys, welcome back. It's Kate here, and I'm excited to be talking today about multilingualism as a layer of fiction. Um, It's a topic that is really dear to my heart as somebody who thinks about um, languages as well as internationalism a lot. Um, You know, I wish I could speak more languages than I do, um, but I'm I'm really interested in it and I'm really in awe of people who um, speak like seven, eight, nine, ten languages, even if they're speaking like three or four, you know, fluently. It's it's super impressive and I just think it gives us um, a different kind of access to a lot of what the world has to offer and maybe even a lot of what um, we have to offer to ourselves. So um, this is another really big topic. We're getting started with some big, big topics. And I would love it in the comments on Substack if you could tell me, you know, if you're interested in any of these areas I talk about today or in the other big topics while we get um, started on the podcast, if there's something you'd like me to do a follow-up on maybe in a couple of months um, about an element of multilingualism um, or particular literary texts, for example, that maybe make use of it or go into it, um, you know, I'm really happy to do that. So um, languages and dialects as well. Why not just choose one your reader will understand and stick to it? We know that languages contain nuance and that rarely one encounters a completely monolingual world. So part of this is just reflecting reality and fiction, but another is, again, um, thinking of fiction as this kind of elliptical place to play, to push ideas further, and just to engage um, with maybe more philosophical ideas or maybe just aesthetically interesting um, concepts in language. So today I'm going to talk a little bit about this kind of background of where I'm coming from with multilingualism and a few of the theories behind it. Um, I'm going to look at a short excerpt from my novel with you, um, even though it's something that will run throughout later on. Um, I'll share with you also an article I wrote about using multilingualism in all kinds of writing. And throughout, I'll have different literary examples Um, So yeah, I guess we can start by thinking of language and the choice of which language we use. And and when I say language, I also mean, as I mentioned before, dialect, um, or even if, you know, sometimes it's hard to define dialect, even if it's um, like more regional accents or idioms, these kinds of things, um, why we use the ones we do or why we learn the ones we do in school or why we use the ones we do in business. Um, you know, all these different areas. And so we can maybe think of it as, you know, it's cultural 
choices, it's political choices, it's also practical choices, and sometimes economical might fall into that sort of practical um, subheading. But it might also simply be a choice related to aesthetic or related to the musicality of the language, the kind of playing of identity, which may or may not be about um, cultural identity, and one's personal connection to language, um, which can be psychological, it can be um, historical in terms of where they've lived and what they've learned and what other um, associations they have with language because of that. So um, I'm also going to link in here an article I wrote about um, finding your rhythm in in language. Actually, it was a short video that I recorded um, on Yoga Culture, my other uh, newsletter. And in that, I talk a little bit about Trevor Noah, who speaks a bunch of languages. And he talks about how you first need to get kind of the rhythm or the musicality of a language to understand it, and then you can start to speak it. Now, maybe you would start to learn them both at the same time. But what he said really resonated with me um, because in my experience, um, if I just talk about, for me, learning French, I learned it in school for many, many years, um, and I had a pretty deep vocabulary and knowledge base in terms of grammar when I arrived in France to to live there for a year. Um, But when I first started speaking to people, it was very kind of slow and stunted, and part of that was just like nerves, you know, um, feeling comfortable speaking in French with, you know, real French people and not just... um, other people who were learning French at home. But it was when somebody said to me, you know, you really just, you you know, you you understand it, you have all the vocabulary, you really just need to kind of let go and flow with the rhythm of the language and don't worry if you make mistakes. And, you know, I was also listening to more French music at the time um, and just kind of listening to everyone around me. And I tried it out. I tried to speak faster than I felt comfortable with, Um, just kind of letting things go. You know, if I made a mistake, not a big deal. If I um, didn't even know a word for sure, I would just try it out and see. And that just worked. Not only were people able to understand me better and engage in conversation, but I was able to just flow into the language um, and just feel it on a different level so that my... I mean, of course, I was I was living there, so I was surrounded and immersed by the language, but I was also able to just go deeper and further um, through that kind of attitude. And I think that's why I was able to um, hold on to the language after, you know, by watching films, listening to music, um, speaking with people who spoke French elsewhere, but not always being immersed um, because I was just really paying attention to that rhythm. And it's it's worked for me in, with other languages as well, maybe not to as, as strong of um, an extent because I hadn't had as many courses and, and background in those languages. But I've noticed this idea more recently with um, my son. So he um, speaks English and German. We speak English at home and a little bit of French, but he has learned... German in school. Um, He's at a completely bilingual school. And 
sometimes now he's almost five and sometimes he'll just start speaking German or singing in German, whereas he didn't really do that so much before. And he's not doing it um, for political or practical or cultural reasons. Um, He's just making that choice. Maybe he likes the way it sounds. Maybe he likes his German teacher and he likes talking with her. Um, Maybe he likes that it's a challenge for him. Um, You know, there are so many other reasons. And I I think for me, I still really love speaking French. And it's not, I do enjoy French culture, a lot of things about it. But it's not only about that. I actually just love the sound of the language. Um, And even when I arrive in France, which is quite often because I'm only about five kilometers from the border here in Basel, um, where they speak German. um, And I'll get into that a little bit later because it's an interesting language matrix here but I just feel different I just feel lighter freer I just love it and I don't know if it's because of my experience with French which hasn't always been positive to be honest um, for me I think it's more just that I enjoy the musicality of it um, so maybe if we just think of those reasons as a starting point it might help us to get into these ideas So, you know, ultimately we're going to be coming back to like why we make these choices in our fictions um, and choosing these languages. So I think it's important to think about the reasons why. Okay, so I just want to start with a couple of quotes. The first one um, comes from researcher Chen Baritzak in this article, Literary Multilingualism, Representation, Forum, Interpretation, and Introduction. And he says, multilingualism can be employed in literature to challenge the national sphere represented by the national language, to contest existing linguistic and cultural hierarchies, majority language versus minority or immigrant languages, or to complicate traditional rigid categories of identity. Writing multilingually opens up new, more nuanced possibilities of literary representation and of poetic thinking about human lives in their ever-changing social contexts about movement across and within different social spaces, or about the always existing mediation between selves and others. So now we're moving into talking about multilingualism versus just different types of language and dialects and the choice that you make. So multilingualism is bringing different languages together. Now, it sounds really messy, um, but as I'll share in the article I wrote, there are ways to do this that are more practical and can allow, if you're writing a fiction, for example, it can allow your reader to still access what you're saying, even if they don't speak the other um, languages that you might integrate. Multilingualism also has a lot to do with this idea of a mother language or mother languages that people speak, because often um, in an educational setting, for example, or it could be in a setting of reading where maybe it's dominantly in in English, you know, what is the mother tongue besides that language of the reader or of the writer as well. Um, And so there's been a lot more value placed on mother tongues um, in education in the last decade or two, I guess, um, because research shows that if students hold on to their mother tongue, that is really nourish it and continue to work on their mother tongue, no matter what the language or languages they're learning um, in school are. 
it can help them with their literacy overall and just their learning base and knowledge base. So, you know, if they're speaking, I don't know, they might be speaking um, Arabic at home and they're going to school and let's say they're at my son's school and they're speaking English and German, it would still be, even though it's a lot to keep up with, it would be valuable for them to not only speak some Arabic at home, but also to um, advance in terms of their literacy in Arabic. So the UN has um, has declared a day of mother languages. You know, they like their special holidays. And in an article called Language and Power, which is quite an interesting one, which I'll link in for you guys, it says, Observance of International Mother Language Day held on 21 February to promote awareness of linguistic and cultural diversity is part of a broader initiative to promote the preservation and protection of all languages used by people of the world. However, from a Foucauldian perspective, language functions as a creative strategic relation, a form of power that structures the field of other possible actions. So this is actually the statesman talking about this UN day. I'm sorry. Um, That's the article that I'll link for you. And, you know, to bring in this idea of Foucault and systems of power, it shows also that, you know, language's power is a little bit elusive and maybe hard to define in a structured way, but it's something that's ubiquitous. You know, it can kind of um, control us even inside our homes um, without realizing it. And so it's really important to have these conversations about um, the languages that people use and accessing them. And on Thursday, I'm going to talk about making your own language profile and how that can be really useful. It's something that um, I've, I've developed with um, teachers to use in, in curriculum to help students to really access their, their own learning and use agency in that way. Why we value an education is that, um, you know, as I said, it helps with, with learning, but it also, and this is related to the learning as well, because a child who feels valued is going to have a, an easier time learning. And it has to do with, with valuing that child's identity and their cultural identity. It values the voice of the student as well. And, you know, a little bit goes a long way. So when we talk about multilingualism and education, it's partly, you know, trying to give access to that um, child's mother tongue, even if they're taking after school courses, something like that. It's also saying, hey, if, um, if you want to, you can also research in your mother tongue. And, you know, maybe you have to write the output, maybe it needs to be English or whatever language it is they're learning in school, but they can also use um, their mother tongue for research. It might be teaching a particular word to the rest of the class, um, you know, and, and in that way, a little bit, again, can go a really long way. You're showing value, you're showing interest, and you're showing that you're open and receptive to having that kind of dialogue with the student. Um and research really shows that this helps students. It's also quite a fun thing to do, especially for um, language and literature teachers, but I think for all kinds of teachers. And maybe this research is applicable to literature and maybe real life. If you think about, you know, a little bit going a long way to um, giving voices to different characters, um, to different cultures, to different identities, Um, or even including culture in different ways if it's not the voice of the characters, even just through food um, and music and things like this. You know, of course, when you're you're learning other languages, you know, fluency is better. And the more you can learn, the better if, you know, depending on the situation, 
if you're living in that place or um, I don't know, you have another reason maybe to to learn the language. But um, even in real life, in those situations, um, even when you start to have a few words, it can go a long way, you know, rather than, um, you know, these days, it's, it's sort of just trying out English, right? And some English speakers have been doing this for a long time. Um, but, you know, even if you just start by learning a few words in, say, the place that you're traveling to, um, it can make a big difference. So even just learning things like the a little bits of the grammatical rules or the rhythms of the language, those, those structures can help you to understand other people who may be um, learning your language. Um, you know, for me, having I've had a lot of different um, international students. I worked in international schools for a long time. And, you know, I think in most places, teachers have students with many mother tongues. Um, but I really had, you know, students' classrooms where I had almost every student with a different mother tongue, for example. And, you know, I can't learn all of their home languages. That would just be impossible. But you can learn certain things about, um, say, Japanese and the way the characters work and the way the grammatical structure works. You can learn, you know, that there aren't articles in Chinese. You can learn that there are um, more capital letters in German. Like, it sounds like really simple things, but they can help us to help the students. So I could go on and on about education because I did a lot of work with curriculum on this. And I'll stop there because I'm not sure um, how useful it is for you for your fictions, but maybe for some of you it would be, and some of you who are teachers, it might be an interesting dialogue to get into as well. Okay, so I just want to frame um, the literary work a little bit more. Um, and if we're talking about multilingualism and language choice in writing, you know, we have to talk about my old friend Deleuze um, and his co-writer, Guattari, who wrote Toward a Minor Literature, which is quite a famous text. Um, so I'm sure you know a lot of you know it. If you don't, um, you can read parts of it online at least. And um, in the, the more practical article I wrote, which I'm going to read to you, I do mention it briefly. So I just want to read a couple of short passages for you. Um, basically, it's telling us that speech is historical, social, and political. So the choice of language for publication, the choice of language for writing, even if it's in a private journal, um, is a historical, social, political one. And um, mainly, they're talking about Kafka here. And Kafka, uh, it's called Kafka Toward a Minor Literature is the, full, is the full title. So it is focused on Kafka. And... Kafka is an interesting figure because he was living in Prague in the Jewish quarter and he spoke both Czech and Hebrew at home, but he went to a German speaking school, which was the norm for um, middle, the middle class at that time. And he published in German. He wrote very infrequently in Czech. And I've got a good article for you there about um, when and why he used different languages. But, you know, so German is the, is the power language. It's the political language. It's the, it's the major language. And so here Deleuze and Guattari are referencing um, Czech and Hebrew as minor languages and therefore looking at 
um, what makes minor literature as well. So I'll just read a couple of quotes for you here. So the first one, how many people today live in a language that is not their own or no longer or not yet even know their own and know poorly the major language that they are forced to serve? This is the problem of immigrants and especially of their children. The problem of minorities, the problem of a minor literature, but also a problem for all of us. How to tear a minor literature away from its own language, allowing it to challenge the language and making it follow a sober revolutionary path. How to become a nomad and an immigrant and a gypsy in relation to one's own language. Kafka answers, steal the baby from its crib, walk the tightrope. And so he's using the dominant language um, to make a minor literature. He's, he's the minor. He's the subversive figure culturally, um, partly because of the languages he speaks. And how is he able to, to use that in a subversive way? Living and writing art and life are only in opposition from the point of view of major literature. So they're not in opposition in minor literature like that of Kafka, for example, people writing from the margins, people writing from um, people writing as immigrants, for example, that would be the most major example that you know you could apply this to today. So Kafka writes in German, um, even though he speaks these three languages. And in the translator's note um, from Deleuze and Guattari, uh, Mary McLean, the most famous translation, Kafka's politics are the politics of desire. They deal with questions of um, shifting borderlines and escape routes. The version which Deleuze and Guattari call minority becoming involves the destabilization of the traditional concepts of territory, the use and transformation of a majority language by a minority, for example, German by Jews, is an exam examination of this deterritorialization. So Deleuze is really interested in linking um, language and ideas with with place um, and this this discussion of when you pull it from a place it destabilizes um, and it changes the way that it interacts with the identity of both the writer and the reader who's then processing the work of that writer Kafka so um, you know again that's an area that we could go in to a little bit more deeply we've mentioned Deleuze uh, last week as well and um, I'm not going to mention him every week, but if there's an area of Deleuze, you know, that we'd like to look at a little bit more, either in one of our coffee chats or in one of these episodes, um, I would love to do that. So you can, I'm sure you can think of many other um, working examples of these kind of minor languages. Um, you know, for example, in the U.S., there actually is no official U.S. language. A few states have labeled English as the official language, but there isn't actually an official one, even though English is functionally. Um, but you could say that different Native American languages are these minor languages or Spanish, for example, um, which is all around in the U.S. and some communities um, speak really mainly in Spanish together. Um, and, you know, because there is this lack of official language, there is more room for experimentation as well, um, such as bilingual education, which we're seeing in some state schools. Um, I know in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in Minneapolis, they have quite a few of these bilingual programs. Um, and, you know, I'm sure there are a bunch more 
around the country, not only with um, Spanish, but other there. I know there's a Japanese school, um, Portuguese, French. Uh, so there are a lot of different languages being looked at in that way. So in other places, you also might see um, a lot of different matrices. And this changes the way we see the major and minor language and your choice of what you write in. Um, so there's also the revival of, um, of old languages. Um, even back in Joyce's Dubliners, there's a scene where he's speaking with, uh, w- sorry, where two of the characters, Gabriel is, is um, speaking with another character about um, speaking Irish versus speaking English. Um, and he thinks that Gabriel thinks that, um, it should be more modern. And this other character who he's dancing with talks about how he doesn't value his traditions if he doesn't speak Irish. And of course, Joyce is Irish, but writing in English. So, you know, there's, there's a discourse that's already being developed there. You know, we see it with Welsh in terms of dominant English, um, uh, countries, but we also see it in many other ways. Um, in Switzerland here, there are four national languages. There's um, German, Italian, French, and Romanche. Um, but each canton, which is kind of like a little state, um, chooses their official language. And so here in Basel, it's German. Some cantons have two languages that are official. But it's not just German, it's Schweizerdeutsch, which is very different from like the German that you'll hear in Germany, the Hochdeutsch. And it's a little bit more complicated because then schools are using um, the German like you hear in Germany, the Hochdeutsch. The more if you're learning German in another country, that's the German you're probably learning. Um, And they are quite different from each other. Um, and so it's different enough that like my son, for example, who speaks the more standard kind of German, um, really has a very hard time understanding Schweizerdeutsch. Uh, and then because we're on the French border as well, and because it's a national language, there's a lot of French spoken here. There's quite a lot of Italian. Um, there are a lot of sort of expats or, um, immigrants who aren't necessarily here forever. And so... For that reason, and because there are a lot of these big international companies, you have a lot of English as well. And so English and French are also being taught in schools. Um, You know, I hear English all over the city um, from young people to old people. And it makes it really complicated to think about, you know, what is the major language? I would say it's certainly not um, Schweizerdeutsch. I would say that's more of a minor language like um, Kafka's Czech or his Hebrew even. Um, It's more of a language of identity. It's not one that you use to graduate from school with. So there are some bars and restaurants here that if you go to, people will really only speak Schweizerdeutsch. And, you know, they're quite forgiving if, again, you try to use a word or two here and there and kind of like smile and use your hands to help you because um, not many people who come from outside of Switzerland speak um, Schweizerdeutsch. There are some immigrants I know who have learned it, but um, it's, it's not one you tend to learn like in language schools. So... We have, you know, if you're if you're writing something that takes place here, you'd have a lot of choices to make about the languages that you use. 
um, you know, there are a lot of these complex uh, multilingual places. Think about India um, and the use of English and Hindi. There's also no official national language in India like in the U.S., although Hindi is mentioned in the Constitution. So it's it's a little bit a little bit complicated. But beyond that, there are some, say, 179 languages with 544 dialects. Other studies say 188 languages with 49 dialects. And then, um, according to the article, which I've linked for you, there are 50 languages of the writing and publishing world in India. And of course, there's a rich um, history with Sanskrit as an ancient language um, which um, which is also a, a literary language. So it's it's a very complicated matrix and one I, that I don't know a lot about. You know, I'd love if one of you out there is um, from India or India scholar of languages. It would be great to hear what you have to say about the major and minor languages. But language has been used in schools, for example, to by different political parties to kind of advance or keep other um, children in different areas back and uh, for in one example they took English out of a certain state and then the students were behind um, economically so it's it's really complex um, in this kind of post-colonial space you know what does that mean what is the relationship with um, with Hindi with English and with all these other languages um, you know I would say most of the Indian people I know or immigrants to America, for example, or the children of immigrants, um, like some of my friends, speak um, several languages, so probably English and Hindi and maybe one or two other um, regional languages. So, you know, if you're if you're writing something in India, you're probably going to have um, words from different languages just naturally or it's probably not going to sound, um, the text itself isn't going to sound like, you know, what you're trying to portray. So if we move to Hong Kong, um, it's, it's also quite complicated. So Cantonese and English are the official languages, although it's changing to Mandarin Chinese or Putonghua, um, it's a little bit complicated what the official status is. Um, so just as for a little bit of background, um, back in the Umbrella Revolution, almost a decade ago now, um, it was partly sparked by a reaction to Beijing's um, national curriculum and the part of what was included in that national curriculum was this mandatory um, Mandarin or Putonghua. And so although Putonghua had already been introduced as early as 1984 in schools in Hong Kong, um, and it was mandatory after the handover, um, it was simply a subject in school. So now we're talking about having the language of instruction, as we call it in schools, language of instruction, predominantly in, in Mandarin or Putonghua. So that would be a major change, right? Because most students, not all, but most um, living in Hong Kong, their mother tongue is Cantonese or maybe Cantonese and English. Quite a few native uh, Mandarin Putonghua speakers as well as a bunch of other languages. Um, 
but the majority Cantonese. And so then it becomes a question of um, cultural identity. Um, you know, in, you've seen this in a lot of other places as well. Um, you've seen it in other places in China for sure, but also in other countries around the world. And even, you know, what I was talking about in German, uh, in Switzerland, with the different kinds of German. But Cantonese and, and Mandarin, they're really two um, different languages. You even use different characters, the traditional or the modern um, Chinese characters. So it looks quite different when it's, when it's written as well. Um, so even as late as 2022, China is denying um, this change in, in schooling language. Um, and so it is, it is very complicated what is actually happening on the ground there in schools and where China is going with things. Um, you know, maybe it's more of a response and wait and see. And, you know, how can they gain um, more political popularity? Um, so it's sort of an ongoing issue. But according to the EDB, which is the Education Bureau in Hong Kong, 72% of primary schools and 37% of secondary schools were using Putanghua to teach Chinese by the school year 2015-16. So this is just after the, the uh, Umbrella Revolution. Yeah. Some parents have welcomed the move as they think learning more Putanghua will give their children an edge. Lam Yokying is one of them. Quote, you must learn Putanghua, you always need it at work, says Lam. Practicing more helps to build confidence in speaking Putanghua. So one could see it as a unifier, or one could see it as an erasure of culture. So from my chapter this past weekend, um, I have this short passage between Ivy, the protagonist, and a taxi driver. The taxi driver persevered. What do you think about this Mandarin thing in schools? Oh, right. I heard about that. She didn't want to say more in case they disagreed. She just wanted an easy ride. Yeah, I don't like it. I moved here from Guangzhou so my kids could learn English, and my wife and I speak Cantonese. What a mess. Yeah, do you think it will really happen? I don't think my kids' teachers even speak Mandarin. Not well, at least. Well, that's what they told us. What are those poor teachers going to do? Such a mess. She decided to engage but changed the direction slightly. Why do you want them to learn English? Oh, come on, English is money, he chuckled. Some people think Mandarin is money. And the passage goes on a little bit, and then it, it uh, concludes when she gets out of the taxi. Um, guy, hey, sorry for my English, he laughed again. No way, your English is great. Sorry for my Cantonese. And then she added reflectively, I really hope your children get to study what they want. Good luck. So um, guy is, is just like a casual way of saying thank you. Um, and in that's it would be quite natural in Hong Kong that you hear either an English conversation with bits of Cantonese popped in, or you hear a Cantonese conversation with bits of English popped in. More recently, there's been a kind of hip Hong Kong English that's been called Kongish, and I'll share an article there for you guys. Um, most famous from Kongish is Ad Oil which you maybe heard of because it was put into the OED and it means um, encouragement or support, such as the way it was used in the protests. Um, another example is laugh daimi. It means they're laughing so hard that they'll pass out. And I mean, Cantonese has, has nine tones. So it's when we talk about the, the singing quality of, of a language, um, you know, the more... 
films that I watched in Cantonese as part of my research, for example, and just being immersed in Cantonese all around me, although English as well as an official language, um, you start to hear that kind of that kind of music, that kind of sound, even sometimes when you're speaking in English. And so you kind of naturally take on some of that accent. It makes it easier to speak with people kind of between languages. Um, and I think it's really interesting the way that happens. It's such a beautiful, beautiful language. It's such a difficult language as well. Um, you know, and coming back to the practical, um, when I started my PhD in Hong Kong, my supervisor who um, was a Hong Konger, you know, she, I said, you know, should I learn Cantonese? I'm going to be looking at Hong Kong films as part of my research. And she said, no way. It would just take you way, way, way too much time and take you away from your um, studies now. By the time you get to the level where it's actually going to help your research, um, it would be way too late. So she said, if you want to start learning it just on your own, great. Um, but she thought it was just it was just too much and that's what I've heard a lot um, with uh, Cantonese speakers when they're advising other people I don't want to say you can't because like a Swiss friend of mine has learned um, Cantonese um, maybe not fluently but she speaks it pretty well and so it is possible but I opted to take um, Mandarin classes instead because I just thought it would be more practical for me so again all these different reasons um, that we choose. We see different kinds of Englishes elsewhere as well. Of course, related to this Kongish is Chinglish or Singlish in Singapore. Um, but even in places like the US, Canada, and England, of course, we have different kinds of Englishes, right? And we see, you know, we can talk about um, code switching as part of this. So it might be um, cultural code switching, but it, it might also be. Um, based on class or the kind of, the quotes around a kind of person that you're talking to. And you see this in George Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion or the film adaptation My Fair Lady. I'll include a clip um, in the post for you guys. This kind of distinction between rich, poor, um, location, you know, where in London are you from in this case, the us versus them, just in the, the language that you know or the grammar that you use. Um, and if you watch that clip, it's kind of cringy, you know, the way that they are, um, the way that they are teaching an accent to show um, how how smart one sounds, really, right? Or being able to fit in. Um, and it reminded me of this guy named Atiab Rashid on University Challenge, which is a quiz show in the UK, which I think is really fun and it's got really difficult questions. Anyway. Um, he, he was really, people loved watching him a few years ago because of his beautiful, posh voice. They called it Honey, I think. Um, and he said in an interview about the show um, that actually this voice uh, was not one that he was born with. It's something that he took upon himself in high school to mimic this teacher that he thought just had this beautiful posh accent and he said that he was a child of immigrants and he really just wanted to sound like he fit into that kind of world and so he took on um that accent so it's it's interesting the way that people can choose to do that um and you know it's also interesting when people choose to reveal that you know he didn't 
he didn't reveal that until an interview a few years later, even though social media was going crazy with his voice, apparently, which I don't know, I think is a little bit weird, but um, his, his team did win. So good for them. So we can we can also look at this in terms of black English. And James Baldwin has this great essay he first published in The New York Times. So uh, you can read that online as well. It's called If Black English Isn't a Language, Then Tell Me What Is. Um, and he writes, it goes without saying then that language is also a political instrument, means and proof of power. It is the most vivid and crucial key to identify. It reveals the private identity and connects one with or divorces one from the larger public or communal identity. Now, I do not know what what white Americans would sound like if there had never been any black people in the United States, but they would not sound the way they sound. Jazz, for example, is a very specific sexual term, as in jazz me, baby, but white people purified it into the jazz age. Socket to me, which means roughly the same thing, has been adopted by Nathaniel Hawthorne's descendants with no qualms or hesitations at all, along with let it all hang out and write on. Beat to his socks, which once the black's most total and despairing image of poverty, was transformed into a thing called the beat generation which phenomenon was largely composed of uptight middle-class white people imitating poverty, trying to get down, to get with it, doing their thing, doing their despairing best to be funky, which we, the blacks, never dreamed of doing. We were funky, baby, like funky was going out of style. Now no one can eat his cake and have it too, and it is late in the day to attempt to penalize black people for having created a language that permits the nation its only glimpse of reality a language without which the nation would be even more whipped than it is. I say that the present skirmish is rooted in American history, and it is. Black English is the creation of the black diaspora. So he's directly connecting language with a cultural identity, and it gives a kind of power to say, yes, black English is a language. If you just suggest that there are these words, okay, that you've noticed that black Americans are using without calling it a language, he's he's just saying that that diminishes the power of that language and therefore the power of the people behind the language and their culture. So a contemporary example um, that plays with this kind of code switching that you see James Baldwin do in his fiction as well. You see him code switch um, moving between black English and American English and even French sometimes, right? So He's, he's using multilingualism and he's code switching in that way. Um, there's a great book, The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. And maybe you've seen the film or maybe you've read it. It's a YA novel, but, um, you know, don't let that put you off of it. Um, I've got a link there to a little post I did about teaching The Hate You Give and some of the reasons to do it. But I'll just read you these very short passages so you get an idea. So the the protagonist in the story is she's narrating the book and she code switches constantly. So she uses a different kind of English when she's speaking to the reader than when she's um, than when she's speaking to her friends. She uses a different kind of language in the black neighborhood where she lives and the white school that she attends. So, for example, um, this is a friend of hers who is black, Khalil Nanya, Khalil says, meaning none of your business. So she actually interprets the words for the reader, assuming that they might not understand. Um, it says, what you pull me over for? He's pulled over by 
the cops and it doesn't go well. This is towards the beginning of the book, but I won't give it away. Um, she uses black English in dialogue with friends and family. And to some extent, I think everyone code switches in similar situations. Um, but here it's maybe more marked by the, the switching between that black neighborhood and the white school. Um, and even then when she ends up talking to um, the police, to these detectives, she says, hello, my voice is changing already. It always happens around other people, whether I'm at Williamson or not. I don't talk like me or sound like me. I choose every word carefully and make sure I pronounce them well. I can never, ever let anyone think I'm ghetto. So she realizes, she's really aware, the way that people see her identity based on the diction um, that she chooses. So the article that I mentioned is called Multilingualism for Writers. And I'm not going to read the entire thing for you now. I'll link it in so you can read it if you like. The, the beginning kind of talks more succinctly about some of the ideas I mentioned now about what multilingualism is and the reasons maybe to include foreign languages um, in, your, in your fiction Moving also between between places and cultures, um, this can be that reason for changing up the languages and giving a kind of authenticity to your text. And it's not just something new that's done. I mean, you see it in like War and Peace, for example, with footnotes of um, the French, even in translations from Russian. I don't read Russian, so um, but in the Russian, there are passages in French and in the English, most English translations keep those passages in French, for example, um, with footnotes. So I, I break it down into really how to use multilingualism in your writing. So considering your audience, um, it's probably a text that's going to be written for a particular group of language speakers, and they're going to have a kind of basis of maybe access to other languages, depending. Um, for example, a Moroccan text might uh, move between Arabic and French much more smoothly, or a Hong Kong one might move between Cantonese and English. Um, so you just want to consider who your audience is. And if it's more global, of course, then, you know, you might need a few more footnotes and things like that. Um, I talk about Kafka and Tour de Minor, minor Literature briefly um, and, uh, and then talk about how to include translations. So there's different ways of doing it. There's the, the footnotes. You can kind of include it um, implicitly in the text. Um, so, for example, Gary Steingart does this really well in Our Country Friends. I really love that book. It's sort of a pandemic novel. Um, it gets a bit funky at times, but it's it's a really lovely text. It almost reads like a play um, in some ways. And so I sort of prepped with the Google of some of the Russian and the Korean words. He's got characters speaking Russian and Korean. So here's... Mufsu. He thought in Russian, well, I'm done for it. Дорогой. Masha said, in parentheses, my dear. So I have no idea how to pronounce Russian words, so I went to Google. Same with Korean, so we're going to do that again for this part. And then Stengar also manages to use words with implicit translations by weaving them into the fabric of his narration. So those times he actually had translated in um, italics and then in parenthetical and here he says come on Ed Karen said make for Nat she's dying to try it take a break from the Mediterranean shit all that 치주. 
as far back as college, exhaling smoke out of the corner of his mouth. So um, you can also do this kind of thing with loan words, words like bon appetit and hors d'oeuvre. We have in English, I mean, a lot of French words in cooking we use in English, or we also have some Japanese words, kamikaze. We have Yiddish, kitsch. We have German, doppelganger. So, you know, you might want to think about using those words more actively if you think they add another layer to your text. So you, you really want to allow the reader to maybe more smoothly read the work, unless it's kind of a central, mysterious element. Like I mentioned Joyce before in Dubliners and in his story Evelyn, he includes this phrase, Deravan Saran, in Gaelic, um, at the protagonist's mother's deathbed. And it's quite confusing, even when you look to the translation, and there's been several academic papers that um, that take a look at this. And it's it's usually translated as the end of pleasure is pain, which is still unclear what Joyce is trying to say. But, you know, that was a moment where I think he really wanted us to be a little bit confused and disoriented. So if you don't want your reader to be disoriented, I would give them the footnote or some kind of definition within. Otherwise, it's just going to be a little bit messy. And then, I mean, this goes without say, but checking your understanding. So sometimes I use... Um, like uh, a few German words now and some of the writing I'm doing in this book that takes place in Vienna and my German is not great you know I've been trying to learn I'm gonna be honest it's been really difficult journey for me with German and so um, you know I've checked these with German speakers and I'll continue to do so you know I think if we even though translations online are so good if we rely on that um, we might run into um, trouble and then you have you know dialectical things like so in Vienna the German again is is very different than it is here um, and you know you you see that with with all languages so you know you why do you want to do this in your in your writing you might do it for for humor and I use the example of life is beautiful um, it can be I know the, that film can is also quite sad at times but there's a really funny moment um when the protagonist is pretending to translate german into italian um and he gives some comic relief to um the other people staying in the concentration camp um using multilingualism can also be less limiting you know you have just more words that you can play with sometimes you don't have the right word um, in English. And we see this sometimes with translations. Like I mentioned translations the last few weeks of Derrida and Deleuze. Sometimes we keep some words in French because it just doesn't quite work in English. Um, polyphonic, if you want to change kind of the sound, that musicality that I mentioned earlier, if you want to really build that into the reading of the text, um, you can add a layer of beauty. It might just be purely aesthetic and you like the way that sounds. Um, and so, and if it fits into your story, that's, that's great. It can also help your readers to learn something new or to maybe think about digging in a new direction, um, whether it's just about language study itself or about the history or the culture of a place. It can really help them to do that. So it's something that you can experiment with. And when I come back to you on Thursday, you know, I'm going to break that down even a little bit more. But let's go back to Hong Kong now for a moment. Spaces and places. This is the part of the podcast when I talk about a particular space or place I've used in this novel chapter and some related ideas you might consider in your own fiction. Okay, so today we are looking at Quarry Bay, um, which is an area on Hong Kong's central island, but it's just 
off from Central. Um, it's one of these places that's um, it's international, it's urban, it's got skyscrapers, it's got the harbor, it's got ferries, it's got a lot of layers of history, all these things, and yet, um, you know, not many people who haven't had experience in Hong Kong have have heard about it because it's it's not central or, you know, it's, it's not something that you hear about um, all the time. And so I'm kind of interested in telling stories also in these um, places that are adjacent to um, iconic or famous places and kind of looking at more the, the everydayness of them. Um, and so I lived in Cory Bay for about a year. I think I mentioned before that I've lived in quite a few apartments in Hong Kong for different reasons. Um, and I mean, people tend to move around in Hong Kong quite a bit, but I think I think I did especially. So Quarry Bay, um, I found it to be I mean, a really beautiful place. Um, it's one of the many places in Hong Kong where you've got skyscrapers meets water meets hiking trails. And it's definitely true there from my flat, which was right on King's Road, which is a super busy um, road. Um, with trams and taxis um, and a metro stop, um, I could be on the hiking trail in five minutes and I could be down by the water like for a run in the morning, say, um, also in five minutes or less even. And so that was just amazing. Um, but so it's it's made up of, of several areas and the area called Taiku gets its name from the Taiku Sugar Refinery. Um, which was once the biggest in the world, um, and now where there's also the site of the Coca-Cola factory. These were put into place um, during British rule, and, and they also made the dockyard and the reservoir. So they were changing the nature of the land itself with some reclaimed land, with you know the, changing the land for the reservoir too. Um, then in World War II, in the middle of British rule, when it, uh, Hong Kong was briefly occupied by Japan, um, it became um, a site uh, where the Japanese really took hold. And for that reason, it was a site of allied bombings. And so a lot of it was destroyed, including the most of the sugar refinery at that time, um, and some of the ferry terminals, which were then um, rebuilt after that. And there's some beautiful images of Quarry Bay, historic Quarry Bay, um, in a link I'm going to share with you guys. Um, I've also got some videos for you on the Substack post so you can check out kind of these three main um, areas of Quarry Bay. There's this one building called the Monster Building, which is quite famous, and it's called or Yik Chong Building. Um, it's also been the site of several Hollywood blockbusters, including Transformers Age of Extinction. And um, that was filmed while I was living in Hong Kong. And I remember that, I think in Cory Bay, actually. And um, I remember making big news because Michael Bay, who is the um, director, was attacked um, and actually a few other crew members as well by Hong Kong triads, which are like the gangs in, in Hong Kong. There's different groups of triads as well. But they um, they were on their turf, basically. And so they were they were trying to get money off of them and you know he got out of it all right and they still made the movie and everything but um yeah it's quite an interesting place this this monster building and so I've got an image for you of it there as well as a video 
kind of tour of Monster Building, and you'll just see how how massive it is. Um, but Koribe was also more inform- informally called Laichi, um, which means late as usual, and refers to the King's Road I mentioned, which is always filled with congestion. The double-decker buses as well, I didn't mention. Those are all over King's Road. And, you know, it's just almost impossible to get anywhere. But since they built the metro, stop there, the MTR, you can just pop underground and be in Central. Or even on the other side of the harbor, you go under in a tunnel in the metro, um, you know, in like five minutes or less. So it's it's super convenient. The Hong Kong transportation is just amazing. And if you're in Quarry Bay, you can very easily get to um, the beaches on the east and south side of the island either by taking these buses and trams or by hiking. And so you can take these hiking trails up and over Mount Parker Road, which is a cement road. So you see a lot of sort of easy hikers there, shall we say. And then it moves off into um, dirt trails and steps and these these um, these trails that go to Tai Tam Reservoir, Violet Hill, there's um, the Twins Hike, there's Sheko Country Park. You can get over to Stanley on the other side, on the south side, um, which is quite a famous spot that a lot of tourists go to as well. So um, there's a lot that you can do in this place. But like I said, it's not really, I would say, internationally famous besides those um, scenes in the Hollywood films. And so what are these urban centers outside of the city? Do they do they lack identity in some ways or do they have more identity because of the the people who are there are just kind of making their own um, their own spaces there? You know, I think of um, like Boston, where I'm from, not from Boston, I'm from a town outside of Boston and places that are not really Boston, not really Cambridge, which is where Harvard University is um, across the river from Boston. Um, places like Somerville, if you've heard of Somerville or Medford, they're kind of urban spaces, still part of this like urban sprawl from Boston, but they're not really Boston. You're not going to see them um, in a movie, likely. Um, In Vienna, it was anything outside of this girdle, which means belt in German. So this kind of belt-like street that was a circle around the city, anything outside of that, which was still more than much more than half of Vienna was seen as just kind of superfluous um but maybe there's a kind of freedom in that as well maybe there's a kind of freedom in being those in these superfluous spaces even if they are densely populated still um you know maybe it's nice that the the restaurant isn't well known or the cafe isn't well known um what do you think about these spaces i would really love to hear it um and i'd really love to hear about the way you might use them in your fiction these kind of um, spaces of the margins or the adjacents, the the ones that maybe you even make up for a fiction. Um, you know, you could make up a neighborhood of Hong Kong, of Boston that doesn't really exist to give you the freedom to um, maybe go a bit deeper with some details that you simply want to create to explore an idea. Um, what do you think about doing this with space in your in your fiction? I'd love to hear it. As always, I'll bring you a five-minute version of today's topic to help you get creative, and let's do this on Thursday. If you're not on my Substack page, please sign up for a free subscription to get access to all the links, multimedia, and a transcript, as well as to join the conversation. Or you can upgrade for just five bucks a month 
to read my fiction each week and join our monthly coffee chats. Thanks so much for joining me today.